You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast waters. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. The Lord gives strength, his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. May the Lord bless his word. Friends, please take a seat. Like I shared earlier, it's a, a, just an immense privilege to be um, bringing God's word to you this morning. I don't take it as a, a light thing at all. It is, uh, as I shared with John earlier, uh, actually an immense burden and responsibility. I don't know how John carries it in and out, week in, week out, uh, but it is one because it's God who speaks. Um, and, and whether it's myself, John or a guest speaker, we're merely the vessels, the mouthpieces. Psalm 29, let's start. Uh, Every organization I've worked at has some sort of purpose or mission statement. Uh, The organization, if you're working at one at the moment, or um, likely has one as well. And usually it's uh, the mission or purpose statement is about uh, doing something really well, or leading the field in some way, or being the best at something. And in, in actual, far from being superficial, these purpose statements are actually incredibly helpful. Uh, they make the purpose of an organization very clear. Uh, they provide a mission that everyone in the organization can rally around. And they give the organization and its people a focus to keep coming back to. Uh, organizations, you see, just like people, get distracted. They go down rabbit holes, they go on tangents. You may have been part of an organization that's done this. We know organizations in recent memories that have done this. Think of a grocery store chain that tried to open up a hardware chain. But as Christians, what is our purpose statement? What is the purpose that we need to keep coming back to, that we need to stay focused on? 
Uh, there are lots of great Christian purpose statements, and I think at our church we have a, a fantastic one. But the one that has gripped me most, the most elegant one I know, comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, was penned in the 1600s by uh, a bunch of theologians, Scottish and English theologians. They wanted to distill uh, the key truths and tenets of the Christian faith and summarize it for everyday people. And so they came up with 107 questions and answers. And the first question is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer they gave very succinctly is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think they got it right. I believe we exist to glorify God. We exist to glorify God. But what exactly makes God glorious? What exactly makes God so praiseworthy, so worthy of being worshipped, praised, honoured and celebrated? I think this psalm will teach us not only that God is glorious, but it will tell us three things about God that make him glorious. Uh, my hope is if you're a Christian here today, that this psalm will just grow you in an awe of God, deepen your reverence for him, and just propel you forth in a life of bringing glory to God. And if you're looking into Christianity, if you're working through what that all means, I hope this psalm leads you to a place where you see how, just how wonderful God is and you want to glorify him, that you even become a Christian today. So let's uh, take a look at this psalm. Uh, the first thing I want to say about Psalm 29 is that it is a beautifully crafted psalm. You would have got the sense of this as I was read out earlier. Uh, this is not a psalm that David has uh, written on the back of a napkin or written while waiting for the bust. Uh, a lot of intentional reflection, deep consideration has gone into this psalm. It is immensely poetic. It is a work of art. The illusions, the vocabulary, the repetitions, all are intentionally selected. These are deliberate poetic choices, artistic choices that David has made in crafting uh, this psalm. The psalm begins with an appeal to the angels to ascribe glory to God. Uh, read with me. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. To ascribe uh, means to give recognition or credit for something. And glory means splendor, magnificence, and honor. So David is saying, at the very onset of this psalm, he's saying to the angels, give glory to God. And that is very strange. It's very strange if you think about it, because David is addressing the angels who, by being the very presence of God, give glory to him 24-7. This is what the angels do. In Isaiah chapter 6, there is this incredible vision that we're given of God in his throne room. Uh, his robe is so long that it fills the entire temple, his entire throne. And the angels, the seraphim, are there crying, holy, holy, holy. God is so glorious that their faces are covered. This is what the angels are doing, worshipping God 24-7. So it's strange that David would actually admonish them to give glory to God. Why does he do that? Why does he open this psalm with this strange admonition and appeal? 
actually, I think it's not strange if you think about it. I think David puts it there simply because God is glorious. I want us to stew on that for a moment. God is glorious. This is an uncontested fact. This is an uncontested truth to David. David knows that even the angels' creation's most splendid, most glorious, most majestic beings, creatures, are preoccupied with bringing glory to God. And so he doesn't hesitate to admonish them to bring glory to God. He's just stating the obvious. It's not just the angels that bring glory to God. Creation as a whole is preoccupied and consumed with bringing glory to God and worshipping him. Psalm 19, David pens these, uh, these words about creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. The reformer John Calvin called creation the theater of God's glory, an arena in which God's glory is constantly, constantly being highlighted and reflected. It's a, a striking and powerful image. Creation is like a movie reel, constantly screening God's glory. Every sunrise, every sunset, every crash of the sea, waves, every, every tree that you see outside us today, even the ones on the nature strip, exist to bring glory to God, reflect his ingenuity, his creativity, his beauty. Creation glorifies God because God is glorious. And this is the main message of Psalm 29. That's why David opens with that. This is the main message of this Psalm 29. And David will give us three things uh, which are in particular glorious about God in this psalm. Firstly, God is powerful. God is powerful. Verse 3 to 6. Read with me. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf in Syrian, like a young wild ox. The psalm from here, from here plays out like a motion picture of a thunderstorm that forms out sea. But then it moves inland. And as it moves through the land, and there's a, a geographical direction to this from north to south, as it moves through the land from north to south, it thunders. It shakes the land, it shatters things, it breaks things, it wreaks absolute destruction and havoc, showing how powerful God is. The imagery is powerful. Verse 3, peals of thunder over the vast sea. Imagine looking at the sea like at night and seeing thunder just lighting up the ocean. That's the image here. Verse 5, cedars known for their strength, a symbol of resilience, are being shattered, forest stripped. God shatters them with his voice like matchsticks in his hands. Verse 6, Lebanon skips like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Even the land shakes and convulses in this thunderstorm. Hearing God's voice. 
I used to uh, have a, a red cattle dog, um, Judy, that was the boldest and most audacious creature. She wouldn't hesitate to chase anything that moved, whether it was a, a person, a bicycle, a car, or even a truck. She would chase it. She was extremely bold. But whenever she heard thunder, whenever she knew thunder was coming, she would cower and quiver. Something about thunder caused her to shake and shiver. And she would run into the laundry and wouldn't come out again until the thunderstorm had passed. Here the thunderstorm is so powerful, it makes Lebanon skip like a calf. In Syrian, it agitates and convulses Syrian like a young wild ox. What is David trying to convey through this incredible picture of God's power? Obviously that God is powerful. Uh, that's, that's very clear. Uh, now, we know that God is powerful, but we often, when we think of God, we think of uh, other things like his compassion, his love, his grace, his mercy. These are all wonderful attributes of God, and we should reflect on them, but they come more naturally to us because they make us feel good. They're warmer and they're fuzzier. But we mustn't forget that God is powerful. And David not only wants us to know that God is powerful, he wants it to feel that God is powerful through his poetry. But not only is God powerful, God has no rival, no rival. God is uncontested without peer in his power. There is in this psalm this striking image of a thunderstorm throughout, and the commentators think that this is probably a contrast to Baal, the pagan, pagan god of the ancient Near East. Baal was known as the thunder god. When people in David's time heard thunder, they thought of Baal, oh, that's Baal, that's Baal. But here, David flips it on its head and makes a mockery of Baal. What is the thunderstorm? What is the thunder? It is just the sound of God's voice. It is no God. It is no God. It is just the sound of the true and living God. God has no peer, no rival. He is alone and absolute in being powerful. So the first thing is, God is glorious because he is powerful. Uh, but there's another reason why God is glorious. He is glorious because he is everywhere. He is all present. The fancy word for this is he's omnipresent. You see, if God was powerful but not all present, not everywhere, then his power would be restricted. The gods, the pagan gods of the ancient Near East were like this. They were restricted. They had power according to people's beliefs in particular domains like the sky, the ocean, the forests. They ruled particular areas. Not so with our God, the true and living God. His power is complete. We see the storm not just stay in one place. It moves from north to south. It moves from Lebanon in the far north, and it finishes up at Kadesh, the wilderness of Kadesh in the far south of the land. And as it moves through the land, it traverses sea, land, mountains, forests, woodlands, and wilderness. The land is completely dominated by God's power and presence. His dominion is absolute, according to David. There is no pocket anywhere in the universe, any place, where God does not rule in an absolute sense. Now, you and I do not always feel God's presence, at least I, I don't. And in fact, when I 
return from study uh, back to work in the corporate world, the first couple years of my uh, work experience were very lonely, very lonely. And in part, that was because I had this skewed understanding uh, of God's presence. You see, uh, I would feel that God was very, very present at church. I would feel that God was very, very present, for example, um, in Bible study or when I was serving youth ministry. He was really present there. Uh, if I could use mobile reception as an analogy, it was like he was four bars at church, four bars, 5G, four bars at church. But when it came to the workplace where I was surrounded by people who didn't share my beliefs and values, sometimes it felt like to me he was one bar or no bars, 2G. But this psalm reminds us that God is present everywhere, four bars everywhere, every pocket of our lives. If there is any pocket of your life where you feel that God is not there, whether it's work, in your studies, school, family, I assure you that God is there four bars. Not 5G, not 10G, a million Gs. He is completely and utterly in control. Psalm 139, again penned by David, puts it this way concerning God's presence. Where can I go to escape your, pre your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Shao, you are there. If I fly on the wings of dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. God is glorious because he is all-present. He is omnipresent. But according to David, there's another reason why God uh, is glorious here, from what I can see. Throughout this psalm, we see God's personal name used 18 times. Uh, I know that because where you see in capital letters, Lord, uh, that's where uh, translators have substituted politely, um, the, you know, in capital letters, Lord, they've substituted that instead of God's personal name, Yahweh. Um, we don't really know how to pronounce Yahweh. Yahweh is just the English rendering. Um, but that is God's personal name. And in the Bible, God doesn't just give it to anyone. He doesn't reveal his name to just anyone. He only reveals it to his people, people he wants to be personal with, people he wants a relationship with, people he wants a connection with. And this psalm is completely saturated with God's personal name. This is a God that David knows personally. I've substituted in uh, Yahweh for where Lord appears, just so we can feel this. And I'm going to read this, and I want you to read with me or read, you know, uh, quietly. And just to think of how it makes you feel about God. We'll just read verse 1 to 5. Ascribe to Yahweh, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of Yahweh is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh above the vast water. The voice of Yahweh in power. The voice of Yahweh in splendor. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh shatters the cedars of Lebanon. 
How does that make you feel? Just reading it with God's personal name. This God is personal. He wants to be known by us. He makes himself known to us. Suddenly we realize this powerful and omnipresent, all-present God is also a personal one. I want to say that this is not the way the world works, okay? Your experience, my experience of the world is not like this. In fact, I've found the more powerful, the more important, the higher up someone is in a particular hierarchy, the more remote and disconnected that they are uh, from normal people, everyday people like myself. Uh, in my role uh, in the organizations I've worked with, I seldom get to meet the CEO. I've only met the CEO of the organizations I've worked for on a number of occasions, and nearly every time without fail, it's been in the elevator or somewhere similar. And I can tell you from personal experience, they have never recognized me. They have never turned around and wanted to strike a conversation with me. Uh, they've never wanted to get to know me. And it's not because they're not nice people. Like, they're actually quite friendly, nice people, these CEOs that I've known from afar. Um, but they can't be personal to everyone. They can be personal maybe to their direct reports, maybe the lay underneath that, but there's no way they can be personal to thousands of people, but our God can. Our God can. He can be personal to everyone, everyone right here, and he wants to be personal to everyone. That's what makes him so glorious. Not only is he powerful, not only is he all-present, he is personal. He is personal. So what is our response to this powerful, present, and personal God? I think the psalm gives us two responses, two main responses to this glorious God. Uh, the first um, is simply to glorify him, to glorify him. Verse 9, all in his temple cry glory, glory. Now, glorifying God isn't a one-off thing. It's an all-life thing. And I think at the heart of it, it requires growing in a knowledge and understanding of God. It, grow, it means growing in an understanding of what makes him glorious, what makes him worthy of worship. And I think there are lots of great ways to grow in understanding and, and awe of God. Uh, reading our Bibles, listening to sermons, uh, hang out with Christian friends, all these can grow us in the knowledge and understanding of God. They're great things. But I reckon one of the most overlooked ways to grow in an awe, in understanding of God's glory, is to actually spend time in nature and to spend time in creation, reflecting on what creation is telling us about God. And I think when we listen more to creation, we'll grow in our awe of God. It struck me at church camp late last year. For those of us who are there, we remember, uh, no doubt, being told by Jono uh, to go out uh, as an activity into the surrounding bush and just to observe creation and to see what it taught us about God. Now, this made a lot of us uncomfortable because we're not used to reflecting <laughs> like that and uh, just going on walks and looking for things. And myself, I was apprehensive, but, you know, we like Jono, so we, we did that. Right. We just went out in faith. But you know what? I, I was walking and not knowing what to expect, but I, I started to just, re, just consider and just 
look at things and and before you knew it, I, I noticed a flower on the, on the ground that just struck me as being beautiful. That was the first cue I got that the, this activity was be, would be fruitful. But it really hit home for me when I just stopped and reflected on this tree. There was nothing special about this, this tree in particular. But what I noticed as I was looking at it was that every leaf was different. Every leaf was different. No two leaves were the same. And it struck me that God is so inexhaustible in his creativity, in his attention to detail, that he would make every leaf on this tree different. And no two leaves in the history of the world, of all the trees that have ever existed, are the same. Such is God's ingenuity and creativity. God is, God is awesome in that way. And if we spend time in creation, in the theater of God's glory, like Calvin encourages us to, we will grow in an awe of him. So uh, glorify God, grow in an awe of him. The second response, and there are two things I want to cover in this, is to fear God and remember God has no rival. To fear God and remember God has no rival. When I say to fear God, I mean to have reverence for him, respect for him, to be in awe of him. Um, when I was at Barber College, one of the interesting facts I learned was that the most frequent command in the Bible is do not fear. Apparently it appears hundreds of times in the Bible in its different forms and I think it's there because as human beings we tend to fear. We become afraid. We become anxious around certain people, around circumstances, around the future. If you're here and you're breathing, I guarantee you there's something that is making you anxious or that worries you or will worry you very shortly. And one of the greatest fears I think we can have as humans is the fear of men, the fear of people. And our response is often one of three things, isn't it? It's either fight, flight, or to follow. You know, if we feel threatened or fearful of somebody, we may confront them or attack them in some way. Or we may flee, we may flight, avoid them. Or we might, may just as commonly follow them, seek to curry favor with them, seek to appease them, seek to please them. But underneath all these responses is this fear of men. And the great problem with that, the fear of men, is that we treat these people as rivals to God. When God has no rival, absolutely no rival, we treat them as rivals to God. And I'm, I'm so guilty of this and continue to be guilty of this. And so the antidote is for you and for me is the fear of God. To remember that there is somebody who is absolute in his power. To remember the one who is truly powerful, God. I want to say that often the greatest rival to God in our lives isn't necessarily other people, interestingly. I reckon sometimes it's actually ourselves. We can be the biggest rival to God. You know, I'm not like some sort of social observer or commentator or anything like that, but I've, I've noticed, particularly in the last couple of years, uh, the, this increasing message in our culture around the self this preoccupation around the self that somehow you can believe you can be anything you want 
that you're stronger uh, than you could possibly know, that you're great and amazing. If only you think or feel a certain way, you would discover your true greatness. And there is no, there's a whole industry around propagating this message, uh, churning out everything from movies to books to stationery to fridge magnets, telling us that we're amazing. Only believe in yourself. And you know what? I think all this focus on the self makes people very stressed and very anxious. All this pressure and expectation on the self to be powerful makes us stressed and very anxious. And I, I see this so much at work. People trying so hard to stretch. You know, verse 11, true strength and true peace, I don't believe, come from within. They don't come from within. They come from without as a gift from the one who is powerful, God. Verse 11, God gives strength to his people. He blesses his people with peace. We don't need to be powerful because God is. And he gives strength and peace to his people. Let me finish with this final point. That this powerful present and personal book God has come to us in Jesus. He is the embodiment of God's power, God's presence, and God's relational nature. In him, we're told, Colossians 1, the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, in his great power, and through his death and resurrection, has conquered death. By his spirit, he's present with us, each one of us, and he calls us to be his friends. He calls us to be his very friends. This Jesus is powerful, present, and with us. And this is why at Red Door we make, and we strive to make all life all about Jesus. And so that we cry, glory, glory to Jesus.